and welcome to Crackpot Theories, the podcast where everything is plausible until proven otherwise. My name is Sinead, and uh, this is season two of Crackpot Theories. We've been on hiatus for quite a while, as any regular listener will be able to tell. Um, we have many reasons as to why we were on hiatus uh, that we are not going to get into right now, but uh, we're very, very happy to be back. Now, I should stop using the word we because, in fact, it's it's just me at the moment. Um, my usual co-host, Surika, has decided to take a break from the podcast for a while. We don't know if or when she'll be coming back, but there will always be a place on this podcast for Surika. Now, because I wasn't in the mood to outright replace anybody because Surika, of course, brought her own flavor to this podcast, instead of finding or trying to clone Surika in some way, I've decided to open up the podcast format to some occasional guest stars who all have their own little niches and their own little special flavor that they bring to the podcast. And uh, the first of these is Billy. Hello, Billy. Hello. So, Billy, I found you on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> like most people do nowadays. This is, well, I mean, the reason why I chose a TikToker is because when I found you, you were reading the Greatest Showman film to absolute filth. Um, <laughs> and I just kind of watched it and I said to me, that's a girl I can get behind. That is a girl that I can get along with. I also have feelings about the Greatest Showman. But as it turns out, I mean, your feelings about the Greatest Showman weren't the only little niche that you've managed to kind of squeeze into your repertoire on TikTok. You have a lot of specialties. I do, unfortunately, and it just grows every single day. <laughs> well, would you like to introduce yourself to our lovely followers? Sure. Hi, guys. Um, I go by Billy Billy B on TikTok. Um, I TikTok mostly. I got viral on an accident, honestly. Um, what I do on there is I explain history. I explain disability. I really like pirates, and that's kind of what took off for me. And now I spend my days answering about 100 questions about what pirates I have in my house and why I prefer it over all other cookware. Um, I have a podcast called Billy Billy Broadcast that you can catch on Spotify once a week on Thursday evenings. And beyond that, I'm just a lowly logistics coordinator who works out of my house. And now I'm on the podcast with you. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because when I first got in touch with you, I had in mind that I was going to give you an entire 40-minute segment so that you could continue reading The Greatest Showman to Filth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But of course, we just, we changed our mind about that in discussions because I found out that you are a curry fanatic. Um, to a fault, yes, I am so obsessed with the 1976 iteration of Carrie that I have a custom tattoo on my left inner bicep of young Carrie. Beautiful. Blood. So yeah, <laughs> that 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 is beautiful. It's iconic. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I found out recently a friend of ours who was on the podcast there before during uh, the RuPaul's Drag Race, the second RuPaul's Drag Race episode that we did. And while she was staying in my house, I found out that she had never seen Carrie and I nearly dropped my teacup. I was so uh, shocked. Sacrilege. Absolutely. It's, it's a rite of passage. It's the iconic horror film for girls, I think. 
Oh, for sure. You can judge so much based on how someone answers the question. What do you think about Carrie? Yeah. If someone goes, she's super weird. I'm like, we're not friends. We can't be friends. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, you know, you're kind of well up to date on what the format of this podcast is. You know what we do here and you haven't run away screaming, which is great. It's a great start. Um, So I have some theories about Carrie. I have one main theory about Carrie that we are going to get into now. And the theory is that the film Carrie and, of course, the book Carrie and all of the iterations of Carrie and uh, the book and film Matilda by Roald Dahl are linked in the fact that they take place in the same universe. And in fact, Carrie and Matilda may, in fact, be blood related. Cousins, for sure. Mm, Something like that. Um, So... Let's kind of talk about the evidence that we have for this, because, I mean, obviously, this is it isn't as out there as a lot of the theories that we've had, but it's still fairly yeah. out there. You know, it's transatlantic. Um, but to start with, I think that the way that Carrie's powers and Matilda's powers manifest are very, very similar. Yes, when they're both under great amounts of stress. Mm, exactly. The difference is, though, that Matilda is a lot more focused. And Carrie is kind of flailing about a little bit. It's like the difference between like a judo master and somebody who's a white belt, but has a lot of kind of natural, um, you know, natural skill that just has to be refined. That's what Carrie is. And Matilda is like the old master. Yeah. And they're both very, they're book nerds, both of them. They both are very curious, unfortunately, Carrie later on. Mm. versus Matilda, who's been a bookworm since birth. Absolutely. And yeah, um, I mean, Matilda is a genius from birth. And a lot of her energy very, very early on, is it's channeled into the reading and the learning of every single book she can get her hands on. Of course, when she was a baby, she started off reading newspapers, and then she upgraded to reading cookbooks. And then after that, she went on to the novels. And we don't know how intelligent Carrie is. I mean, I watched the film a good few times and she seemed fairly studious. But I mean, I also think that all the scenes with her researching in the library, I think she was the kind of kid who would have hidden in the library, you know, as opposed to even just going in there to learn. She kind of went and hid in the library from all of the other kids, you know? Oh, for sure. Like, I'm sure she ate lunch in there most days, yeah. to be honest. But she's not... She hides away a lot. Um, I think she is studious with what her mother wants her to be studious with, but she's very, I would say the main difference between Matilda and Carrie is Carrie is extremely sheltered. Mm. Whereas Matilda's parents let her run amok because they just don't care. Yeah. She's a latchkey kid, basically. Um, At a much younger age than most latchkey kids are latchkey kids. But, um, and I also think that it, during the time that that was written, I, can't, I think that that was very much the way that Roald Dahl grew up. And this was a lot of kids that he knew. They all had the keys to their house because both their mom and dad were working and they just kind of let themselves in and out. So there's a lot of independence Absolutely. there. Yeah. Um, but we do know that Carrie, she's able to sew very, very well, which is, of course, it's a difficult skill to get the hang of. And especially you notice that when she makes her own prom dress, those are not normal seams that she's using. The prom no. dress that she wears in the first film, and um, that's a bias cut dress, you know, uh, which is a difficult mm-hmm. enough technique. Do you, do you have something to say about that dress? Um, 
more than you know. So I guess I didn't mention it. I sew myself. Excellent. And I have tried to recreate the carry dress on multiple occasions. Um, it usually winds up with me just freaking out and throwing it. Because why, God, why? Um, it is a bias cut dress, which means all the raw seams on it use bias tape. Which if you try to get that, try to get that straight, um, mm. it will make anybody rage. Um, and it's also gathered silk around yeah. the bus line, which is evil. <laughs> Pure it is, evil. It is evil. It's it's one of the most difficult fabrics to work with. And you make it even more difficult by the fact that you're trying to match up your biases as well. Like this is all advanced sewing stuff, you know, and it's I'm no, I'm no stranger to advanced sewing techniques myself. And I, I know that you're not a stranger to the advanced sewing technique either, but this is really advanced stuff that she's using. Like not so much in the remake, you know, the 2002 remake don't even know. Oh, okay. We're not going to talk about the 2013 Chloe Moritz remake. <laughs> no, we will mention it a little bit at the end, but I meant the I meant the 2002 Angela Bettis one. Oh, the one that shall not be spoken of. Yeah. They're they're both kind of ones that shall not be spoken of, but I did quite like in the Angela Bettis version that it looked like it was a more entry-level dress. It yes. looked like it was kind of a dress that you could actually sew. And I also really like the fact that, you know, all the teenagers in that looked like really dorky teenagers. I, I, <laughs> a lot more realistic, for sure. A, a little bit, you know, with their awkward faces and their lip gloss and their little hairbands and everything. It's like, the you know, that was kind of a time period when I grew, I became of age. So I remember what people looked like back then. And I don't know, there's something about it that just kind of grabs me. But yeah, that dress is a bit more simple and you you kind of notice that when she's walking around in it, it's like, oh, you made this out of the fabric that wrinkles really easily. Bless you. <laughs> For sure. But I also, okay, so I do have a bone to pick with that movie only because um, that iteration of the movie, I think, dumbs carry down yes. a good 20 IQ points. And it's so unfortunate because if you're locked in a house 24-7 and it is School, home, school, home. Of course she's going to be good at sewing. She's not allowed to do anything else. Mm. So when you're like, yeah, she just goes home and sits and stares at a wall. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. I tend to think Carrie's an extremely intelligent human, just maybe in a practical way instead of a book smart way, if that makes sense. Uh, that absolutely does. Actually, um, to go off on a tangent, um, Back when I used to watch Hoarders religiously. Um, <gasps> that was our quarantine binge. That is the first thing we finished with all 12 seasons of Hoarders. It's because it gives you the motivation to actually get up and clean your house. It's because, oh, I've got too many balls of sewing wool. I'd better just kind of toss them out. Or, or um, what's a doctor term? Um, you know the doctor, the permatan doctor. She's going to knock on the door and just go, Sinead, this is terrible. You need to stop. <laughs> um, but there was an episode with a woman who was actually a culinary genius. She was, she was a genius full stop. She was a genius in many different ways. But she was in a very, very abusive relationship. And the her husband pretty much forbade her from picking up any kind of hobbies, channeling her genius in any way. So she found the only real way she could do it was channeling it through food. And she became a culinary masterpiece. But of course, then over time, it got warped. And, you know, she expressed um, 
how unstable she was through this same medium, which was very, very sad. It was a very sad episode. But, you know, when you have a huge amount of intelligence, you're going to have to find a way to channel it somehow. And, Absolutely. And that is very, um, it's very, very key in Carrie that she is excellent at sewing. She knows her Bible off by heart. And, you know, I know you don't like the Chloe Moretz version, but <laughs> there is a moment when she sews through her mom that's nowhere in the Bible. They don't say that anywhere in the Bible. You're talking nonsense, woman. Will you stop? She didn't say it quite like that, but, um, you know, I mean, I've read the Bible a couple of times. There's bits and pieces I can remember here and there, um, but, like, I wouldn't know the entire thing enough to fact-check somebody on it. But, you know... Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, secondary tangent to that, uh, my degree is in medieval art history. So nice. I had to read the Bible backwards and forwards about a dozen times while in college alone. And I unfortunately grew up in the um, Neo-Lutheran church. Oh. Thank God I'm not that yet right. <gasps> um, <laughs> and I, I got confirmed. So I had to memorize large, I'm talking three, four, five pages of the Bible and one thing that always caught me off guard in all three iterations of Carrie is that her mother never once quotes the Bible mm, properly. Absolutely. And it drove me nuts and made me hate her ten times more. Because I was like, woman, if you're going to be this much of a whatever, um, you can at least get that right. Like, come on now. You can't expect that somebody hasn't read the Bible. But then I realized she is a hermit. She's in her house all day long every day. Mm. So she can warp Christianity to whatever she wants. And it's hilarious to me that throughout all of it, nobody, I have never seen a Reddit forum. I'm waiting for the Reddit forum and it still hasn't <laughs> happened in my 29 years of existence. I'm waiting. Hell, I might start it myself. The Reddit forum being like, can we quote Carrie's mom, please, repeatedly, just every single line that Carrie's mom has where she quotes the Bible. And can someone come through here and correct it in all three versions of the Bible? <laughs> can we do this today? Because I'll do it myself if somebody else won't. You know, it drives me nuts. <laughs> but you know, that's probably the reason the whole um, the the closet exists is because maybe Carrie very early on said to her mom, "That's not in the Bible. They don't say that anywhere." And she's like, "Okay, no, no, you have to be shut away." So if you do that and if you make that Reddit, then she might manifest in your house and lock you in a press somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I often wonder. Crackpot theory number 4.2. I often wonder if Carrie would even have manifest her powers at all if it hadn't have been for her mom being so horrible. Mm. Be well, be yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, well, um, with Matilda, at the very least we know that she was able to manifest her powers because she was basically left alone. So she had an entire world to, to kind of channel things out. I mean, her parents were obviously abusive and they were horrible, but for the most part they were just you know, at best they were neglectful and there's no sign that they ever, you know, actually hit her or struck her. So she, she didn't really fear them. So, no. and, and that's a very important thing, I think, is the absence of fear. She mostly just kind of held them in a sort of contempt, the way you kind of regard people as being lesser than you, if you have anybody that you feel superior to, is that Matilda definitely felt superior to her parents. And, you know, there's a lot of power in that as well. So, you know, um, average intelligence or not, I think that um, there was a big part of her powers manifesting was the contempt that she had for her parents and the freedom that she had from them. 
And Mm -hmm. Carrie could have probably been so much more powerful if it wasn't for her mum being such a helicopter. I think it's the opposite. Okay. I I think her mom is the catalyst. I think if her mom, if her life had been so much easier and maybe she wouldn't have had so much stress that she never would have discovered her powers in the first place because the whole reason her power starts showing up is because of the first horrible thing that happened to her in that locker room. Mm. It's And her mother just compounded it. And when you wind something tight enough, eventually it's going to explode. Well, actually, so, that's that's the thing I'm going to bring up as well is um, in the book version, they wanted to put it in the film, but they couldn't make it work. Um, in the book film, I think when Carrie was about three or four, you have the incident where she brings down all the rocks on the house. You're right. And that's her first kind of burst of power. But after that, it just kind of disappears for years and years and years until she has the red moment. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, who who the hell knows? I mean, I'm at the point where I'm just kind of like in awe of the masterpiece itself. Like the fact that she can, well, the, the, the way she murders is completely different in the book than it is the movie. Yeah. But the, the fact that she can take all of that out and bring an entire house down on her mother in, in a fit of rage, I'm in awe of. And in all honesty, I don't think Matilda could have done that. Yeah, I think a, Matilda, yeah, Matilda's had time to cultivate her power and she can control it. Yeah, I get you, yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose it is just kind of, um, it, it's a question of kind of raw skill as opposed to refined power. In that Matilda, of course, she manifested her powers quite early on as well. Um, but then when she did the whole, like, I could say that when she picked up the piece of chalk and started writing on the board... That was roughly equivalent to the way Carrie broke um, light bulbs, knocked over ashtrays, you know, shoved her mum down on the bed, that kind of thing when she was about to go out to the prom. And that, like, there's also the thing about Matilda is that after she's done it, she kind of can't do it again, you know, because she feels like, um, oh, well, I, I guess it all this power built up for one specific purpose and now I can't do it anymore. But oh, well, I got everything I wanted. My abusive parents are gone. I'm living with the teacher now. Your one is gone as well. And we don't know if she's ever going to come back. So life is good. I don't need these powers anymore. Um, but of course, she's five. You know, so that's it's slightly different. Who's to say that, you know, when she grows up and she's not five anymore, she's 16 and she's going through an emo phase and, you know, she she's talking back to her adoptive mom and all the rest that she might kind of start slamming doors with her mind instead of her hands and it'll start kind of trickling back slowly because the way I do see it is that the young Carrie did have that outburst of power and then after that she was probably in quite a weakened state the way Matilda was. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it built up again over time until she was 16 and it started getting released again with all the crap that was going on in school. Mm. Good theory. I like that. <laughs> I, I could see that for sure. Yeah, mm. I guess you have like a moment of dormancy and then, you know, puberty ruins everything and everything goes to hell again. Um, that, that makes sense. I just don't ever see. I guess I just can't. Because we have this idea in our head of Matilda. Like you mm. said, she's five. She's forever five yeah. in our brains. Um, the idea of her growing up and becoming full of rage just doesn't ring true in my brain because she's always been so logical. 
mm. and intelligent and would never let her emotions get the best of her. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, you got Carrie, whose emotions are on her sleeve at any given time. So, I guess two different personalities, I guess. Maybe so, but I I do think that every girl goes through a period of being very angry, sometimes for no reason, sometimes for very good reasons, and it's just kind of a natural state to be in. So, I mean, even so, like, you know, if you're a very intelligent girl going through the school system, I mean, you you might even have great social skills, and the social skills, that's something we're going to get onto in a minute, but, you know, even if you do have great social skills, um, going through secondary school as a teenager your body changing nothing looks right all of the clothes that you have don't fit you and they're horrible anyway and there's these weird trends that you don't like but you feel like you have to do them anyway and there's there is that period of anger and it's just so much worse for Carrie because of how restricted she is and how she's able to express herself she's already on the back end with Matilda Matilda probably is going to have it a bit easier when she grows up but at the same time, she is still, I think, going to have that that period of very, very distinctly female rage. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the way I think, because I, like, you know, the whole thing about this podcast is because we're speculating about the future. <laughs> I like to cover all the uh, the avenues and like, you know, what would Carrie be like if she became like 60 years old and, you know, um, was driving around in an ice cream van and kind of living her best life? <laughs> You know, if she survived. Oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, actually, we'll talk a little bit about social skills now because this is another um, thing where the differences between Carrie and Matilda are very highly um, orchestrated, I guess, um, because Carrie is not just an outcast, but she is the outcast. She's the outcast that even other outcasts pick on. Like, in the... <laughs> In the film, do you remember there, there's a girl that's kind of in the crowd at the same time? And she's kind of like, she, she looks like she could be about 20 years older than the rest of them. Like, she, she's got the real middle-aged haircut, the terrible glasses, and she's a little bit dumpy. I know exactly who you're talking about. Her, She's got brown hair. Yeah. And she's always got, like, skater socks on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, her shorts are high-waisted, and she's always got, like, ringer t-shirts. Yeah, I hate her. <laughs> oh, uh, no, no, no. That's Norma. That's the one with the baseball cap, I think. Nope, other one. Mm-mm. I know exactly who you're talking about. She's got the big, giant, rimmed glasses. Oh, yeah. uh, yes, yes. Sorry, she, I forgot She looks about... like she's almost, yeah, like 40 years old, and you're like, why are you here? I don't remember her wearing shorts at all. I just remember her being in, the, like, the librarian outfit. Really? Yeah, that's just, that is my constant mental image. I don't know. Am I, like, mentally superimposing something else over this? <laughs> no. It's just... That's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but just, you know what? It could be true. Who knows? It it could be. I'm going to have to watch it again um, this week because <laughs> I watched it three times in the run-up to this podcast. But I, I, obviously she did wear shorts in the whole, you know, punishment workout scene. But I, I cannot picture it in my head. I can only picture the regular dumpy librarian. I, I'm Here not trying to say that all librarians are dumpy. But Is it Helen Shires? I think, Shires? I think it could be because she was in the beauty salon with um, Norma. And Norma, yes. was, Norma was talking to her like she was an equal. And I just felt like this wouldn't happen 
she wouldn't even acknowledge your existence if it wasn't for Carrie because Carrie is very much on the bottom rung of that ladder and Helen I think is maybe two rungs ahead of her and this is why Helen is so extra vicious in these moments when they're picking on Carrie it's like she's really joining in with the rest of them and like she's got this real distinctive hyena cackle as well and just like you know there but for the grace of God go you you know that could be you they could just oh, as yeah. easily do this to you. You just got lucky that Carrie's on the bottom part of that, that ladder, and she knows it. Oh, yeah. No, I just looked it up. It is Helen. Ah, it thanks. is Miss Helen. And you know what? You know why the shorts thing sticks in my head so much? is because one of my favorite scenes is them being punished for bullying <laughs> Carrie. So I'm like, yes, I love it when people get slapped for being terrible. So my brain is, I, oh, God, who, who doesn't want their bullies to be slapped by a teacher? Like, mm. let's be real. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I I don't know why I cannot picture her in shorts because I can I can picture um Betty Buckley in shorts, obviously, and um, um the actress who played uh, Chris, and the actress who played Norma because it felt like Norma wore nothing but shorts and that baseball cap, and then that terrible hoedown dress at the prom. <laughs> It was a hoedown dress, wasn't it? Oh, it looks so bad. It they they so were bad. they were all hoedown dresses. They all were. Do you, do you um did you ever watch Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion? Of course I did. Yeah, because that's another rite of passage film right there. But like that bit when the girls are all looking at Romeo and Michelle at the prom and they're dressed like Madonna, and they look absolutely amazing. Uh, and they're all wearing the hoedown dresses. And I think it's either Romeo or Michelle. She does directly refer to them as as, as going to a hoedown. And it's like, this is so true. This is so true. And the thing is, I have worn blouses like that for reasons. And I know that they're hoedown blouses, but they just go with the rest of everything I'm wearing. And I feel almost ashamed. Because no, hoedown. don't. Wear it proudly. <laughs> Be like, this is Carrie chic. Everyone leave me alone. Yeah, just, 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 just like do a chord with a, a a baseball cap and some runners and a bunch of fake ballots. <laughs> it it is yeah. my ambition to do a carry cosplay someday, complete with all of the blood. Oh, you're going to be so sticky! I, oh God, the corn syrup! Like, well, oh, I was just no. gonna use I was gonna use gravy. Like, oh yeah, I, I'm going to smell like a pot roast, but who cares? It, it's it's all for the art. I have been more uncomfortable for the sake of cosplay than smelling like uh, a Sunday dinner. But anyway, oh. we we had better move on because we <laughs> we've gotten madly off track now. Um, Whoops! <laughs> this happens a lot on this podcast, so uh, our listeners are well used to it. I I should hope anyway by now. Um, but yeah, so anyway, Carrie basically has nobody. And the thing is, she has nobody for years because it is mentioned in the book that she's grown up with these people. These are the people that she went to summer camp with when she was allowed to go to summer camp. She was in dance classes with them because they remember her making a fool of herself in dance classes when she was like 10. Um, they've been together since... Um, now, I know the school system works differently in America, so I might get this wrong, but I think they go, doesn't it go elementary, junior high, senior high? Um, it is elementary, middle school, high school. Okay. Um, yeah, but basically she's gone up through all of those schools 
with the people who are picking on her now and they've been picking on mm -hmm. her for years she's never had a chance to actually connect with anybody else until sue snell in all of her magnanimous glory uh, decides that uh, she wants to assuage her guilt by trying to help her um, in the most ham-fisted way possible for you to help a, somebody who's in that situation and then of course miss collins who is a bit better at it but of course she's like she's a teacher her hands are tight um, yeah. But then the big difference there is Matilda has friends from the from the get-go. Like um, in the book, she mentioned there was a whole prank that she played on her father where she stuffed a parrot up a chimney and got the parrot to repeat certain phrases. And <laughs> But it was mentioned that she actually borrowed the parrot from a friend of hers that lived around the corner. So this was a person who she had enough of a relationship with to ask could she borrow their parrot. So... That's that's a good friendship, and this would that's have been a good friend. That's a very that you borrow their pet to shove up a chimney. I when I was that age, I would not let you borrow a toy car, or a Barbie shoe. You know, nobody is that good a friend, as far as I'm concerned, to be given just giving away my stuff willy nilly. But then, um, you know, I had very few toys growing up, so uh, I'm probably a little bit grabbier in regards to them i had a lot of books and i didn't like lending out my books um yeah but yeah when it comes to friends like she's built up enough of a relationship with this kid that he goes yeah sure you can take my power to play this prank it's going to be brilliant and that's before she goes to school so this is when she's kind of from the age of about three to the age of about five maybe before she goes into school um and, I mean, if she's friends with this one kid, she's probably friends with other kids, with other neighborhood kids. Some of them might, in fact, be older kids as well. Um, I know that when Roald Dahl was writing this book, there was more of a thing where all of the neighborhood kids kind of gathered in local areas to just kind of wander around for hours. And this is probably something that Matilda did as well. Um, and just that, you know... The neighborhood kids, they probably weren't necessarily even good friends as such. It's just that she was tagging along with them and they let her and they were happy enough with that. So that kind of built up her social skills quite a bit. Whereas Carrie, even though she has gone to all of these things with all of these people that were in her school when she was allowed to, she's incredibly isolated. So she hasn't got a single friend and... I don't think in the book, they definitely don't bring it up in uh, the film, that she has ever had a single friend that she could hang out with. Like, she's always been kind of marked out as the outcast from day one. Oh, yeah. Her mother made sure of that. Mm. Yeah. 100%. Even if she started to make friends, her mother definitely made sure that she was isolated from everybody else. I don't even think she had a chance to mm. make friends. And even if she tried, her mom, in her own right, was so weird. Just yeah. so weird showing up at people's doors unannounced being like, have you read the word today? It's like, stop it. Stop it. So, yeah, even if she tried to make friends, she's a complete outcast because her mother is insane. She's mm -hmm. absolutely insane and overbearing. So, of course, you know, if they didn't want to deal with Carrie, that's one thing. But they definitely don't want to deal with her mom. And having Carrie in their lives would kind of subject them to having to deal with Mrs. White and all of her randomness. Yeah. yeah Matilda's like way smart and and like socially smart she understands people mm. i don't think carrie has a clue i don't think carrie knows how to read people at all because all on his instability 
Yeah. And this is something I brought up in uh, our episode that we did about the omen. Um, when I was bringing up um, Damien's behaviours. And I said that he comes off an awful lot like a child who has an attachment disorder rather than the Antichrist. Um, just because his, his social skills do seem a bit lacking. He throws a tantrum about going to Mass. But, I mean, I threw tantrums about going to Mass. You know, I threw tantrums about going to Mass. Every, <laughs> everybody has thrown tantrums about going to Mass. Doesn't mean that your child is the Antichrist. And, of course, there's these big sections of time when his parents were not there and when his caregiver died and then was replaced without anybody saying a word to him, that, you know, Damien was probably quite a normal child. It's just that the way he was raised kind of messed him up, really. And what I brought up was with attachment disorders especially is that from the age of about um, when you're a baby to the age of about five, you have those five years to build up your social blueprint because your primary caregiver is how you rely that's the person you rely on to teach you how to interact with the rest of the world now if that bond is severed somehow because of you know because the child has a condition because the mother has a condition because of postpartum depression and because of neglect because of abuse then that child does not know how to interact with other people and they come off as very socially odd they don't know how to carry out a normal conversation. They don't know how to do the normal give and take. They don't know how to make friends. They just don't, that blueprint isn't there. So they're kind of fumbling through life without the recipe that they need to make things work. And in Matilda's case, and I know that this has been said by other kids who were neglected, is that in the absence of a proper caregiver, they chose a fictional role model or okay. somebody random. You know, I, well, Kids that I I read accounts of, um, one person said that Mr. Rogers really taught them how to interact with the rest of the world. Somebody else said um, the adults on Sesame Street taught them how to interact with the rest of the world. Somebody said Optimus Prime was their father figure. And it's, yeah, and but, I mean, these were kids who were coming from backgrounds of um, severe neglect, not necessarily physical abuse and not... The kind of abuse that you get specifically from a religious extremist family. Sure. Um, so, I mean, Carrie is very much lost. Matilda at least had her books. You know, yes. she, she had a whole bunch of uh, moral heroes that she could look up to from her books. And then she had like, you know, her neighborhood people that looked after her. She The librarian was very good to her. And probably I, I'd say, you know, and I know this is kind of a, it's a, a working class thing, I think, is that when a child turns up at um, a mother's door, you know, it's a friend of her kids and the child turns up kind of dirty and they look a bit hungry. They just kind of they don't ask any questions. They just kind of bring them into the kitchen, give them some dinner and then send them on their way. And that was very much a thing kind of after the war, because so many people were living in very kind of broken down conditions. So... You know, people looked after each other's kids. That kind yeah, of way. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah. Completely normal. I mean, I grew up the same way. I, I grew up, like, you know, come home before the streetlights come on or else. And I can't tell you how many times I would just disappear into my friends' houses, call my mom, be like, I'm staying here. And then it was like, it's bath time. We're eating dinner. We're doing all of this. And if my parents were out working or whatever, that's that was my life. So I completely get that. There's many times where I'm like, I have about five moms 
Mm. I have my birth mom and then I've got my four other moms, which are my friends' moms who helped raise me because I was everywhere. So I totally get that for sure. And yeah, my same thing, attachment issues with my parents. Absolutely. Mm. So yeah, I had, I was a big bookworm very young because I'm guessing it, it gave me something to do. And growing up, my role models, it's funny you said Mr. Rogers. I was like, yep, that's my <laughs> uncle. I was like, that's literally where I learned my manners. Mm. So Mr. Rogers, I was a hardcore Sesame Street, Elmo, Barney in the house. I was born in 91. So, yeah, hopefully everybody listening to this is an elder millennial as well. Uh, I've, I've got you beat by that by quite a few years. Um, but we'll say no more <laughs> about that. And. <laughs> No, but the, yeah, that's kind of the universal experience really is that for a lot of kind of um, kids who are a little bit adrift in life, mm-hmm. that they could all, if they had a working TV or if they had um, access to books, that they would find some way of interacting with the, the rest of the world. They'd kind of cobble together their own little blueprint in order to get out there. And they do say like, uh, it's much easier to recover from an attachment disorder if you come from a background of neglect rather than abuse because when it's abuse there's a huge level control there and controlling who you have access to and what you have access to and then that is with Carrie. Carrie has no blueprint because I'm sure during her childhood there were people who would at at least try to kind of invite her in, give her a sandwich, talk to her a little bit, ask her some questions. You know the way kids like to talk about dinosaurs and My Little Pony Mm -hmm. and all the things that they like and occasionally you'll get a parent saying to them, oh, nobody wants to hear about your dinosaur facts. Shut up. And I'll be sitting there going, I absolutely want to hear about your dinosaur facts. You tell me all about your dinosaurs. Who's your favorite dinosaur? Kind of thing. It's, you know, that's something that kids can kind of grab onto, you know, that mm-hmm. somebody actually is treating them with a little bit of respect, even if they don't know the the word respect just yet. But of course, Carrie wouldn't have had any of this because her mum would have stifled any of that interaction very early on. So that by the time she got to kind of 11, 12, 13, nobody even tried anymore. Right. Yeah, no, she's also extremely creative. I love that about her. And that's the only way she could express herself. She wasn't allowed to say things. She wasn't allowed to pitch tantrums, I'm sure, even as a child. But as a teenager, she wasn't allowed to have mood swings or do normal teenage things. She wasn't allowed to back talk, wasn't allowed to go anywhere, talk to anyone, be on the phone, watch TV. The only radio she was allowed to listen to was her mom's of her mom's choosing. So she was very creative. Unfortunately, in her um, closet scene, uh, you get to see some of her creativity firsthand with her <laughs> creepy crucifix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it creates as terrible as it sounds uh neglect creates extreme um i guess pragmatism mm. which lends itself to creativity absolutely and yeah if you don't see anything pretty what are you going to automatically do try to make something pretty and if you do that enough times you get good at it hence why her dress looks like it should be twelve hundred dollars she goes to the prom mm. <laughs> instead of looking like some, you know, you know, the early 2000s Carrie, who, like you said, her dress is made out of might as well be crepe paper. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, another little bugbear that I have about um, the more modern one is that Carrie is too attractive. And I'm not and saying it, that I'm not saying that about the actress herself, but I'm just saying they could have put in a bit more effort to make her look 
more awkward with Sissy Spacek. You see her washing her hair with a bar of soap. And, yeah. you know, as a person with very curly hair, I kind of look at that and I just go, no, put the soap away. You don't know how much damage you're doing. <laughs> oh, I have curly hair as well, as well. So, yes, every time I watch it, I do make a little bit of a shudder. Mm. It freaks me out. But um, I don't know how much you know about the casting process of Carrie, but she was relentless. Sissy Spacek went in there with... Uh, olive oil in her hair yeah and she didn't wash her face for like a week and a half to give herself pimples and didn't brush her teeth for a week and just looked like she had been run over by a train mm. this poor girl and went in and sat down and didn't speak was completely withdrawn and i'm like woman how how badly did you want this part because me uh, the idea of running oil i don't want through my hair makes me oh my god like it's giving me flashbacks right now before I knew how to take care of curly hair I'm just like oh no we, oh no we all have those moments just remembering no, and, back what we used to do oh my god the flat ironing yeah. oh my god the early 2000s I fried my hair completely off but yeah Chloe Moretz is way too I'm not gonna say pretty but like she is conventionally attractive Whereas Sissy Spacek, back around that time, you know, Chris's character, you know, little button nose, blonde waves, yeah. very Farrah Fawcett looking. Redheads back in the 70s were not given their time to shine. And somebody who had a lot of freckles on their face. And Sissy Spacek has a very striking look to her. And she, I won't say she different looking you could definitely pick her out of a lineup if she committed a crime yeah like um, she's she's really not classic- to see the other two yeah she's not classically beautiful but she can look very well put together and that's the thing chloe grace moretz looks too well put together at least in the angela bettis version you could kind of pin angela bettis she had the awkward haircut she had the stringy hair she you know she looked like she doesn't moisturize that kind of thing you know that that's that's a normal kind of awkward teen way to look essentially that you don't look like you know you're you're able to take good care of yourself that kind of way and sissy spacek had that too she had that she had that kind of method acting process like daniel day lewis does when he decides to go and live as a cobbler in the forest to prepare for a role <laughs> for two full years and yeah sissy spacek did something similar um, but yeah, I, I do think the remake missed the point on that quite a lot, and that's what bothers me. Whereas the ninth, uh, you know, the seventies version, Sissy Spacek really committed to looking awkward, and that is hard for a girl to do. Like even a very serious actress, it's hard to make yourself look unattractive in a film right. because, of course, we grow up being told that we have to always look attractive. Oh yeah. 24-7, 365, women are inundated constantly with looking the right way, acting the right way, being the right way. Hmm. It's, just, it's, imp- it's impossible to live up to. Um, but I find that with the 2002 iteration of Carrie, the number one thing out of the entire movie that irks me to death, and a lot of people fight me on this because they're like, it's a horror movie. They make Carrie too scary. They, yeah. They, they put the onus on her. I was like, I love the 1976 version so much because they put the onus on the other people. They are hurting Carrie. They are being awful to Carrie. This wouldn't have happened if they weren't so awful to Carrie. Whereas in the 2002 version, they, they make her out to be this almost criminal 
Yeah. Like, she's scary, and we all knew something was going to happen eventually, and I'm just like, no! <laughs> she's an awkward 16-year-old who doesn't fill out her clothes right and has, you know, too many blemishes on her face. And then you got Chloe Grace Moretz, who looks like a... She looks like what she is, a A-list movie star. She looks like she moisturizes. Yeah, she looks like she moisturizes and uh, takes. She conditions her hair. She takes a multivitamin every day. Yeah, pretty much. But, For sure. but of course, that you know, I mean, if you if you know and have seen people from uh, very strict religious families, you know the look. You, oh yeah. You know the look. They, you know, the whole scrubbing the face with soap. Um, I actually call it the farmer look because a lot of farmers. Um, have that look as well because they're out in the sun the whole time so they've got these um very you know high color cheeks to them mm-hmm. and that's kind of how you know that they're farmers and in that way I think a lot of um people from kind of fundamentalist religious sects they do look like that because their skin it's always rubbed very roughly with soap and Sissy Spacek has that look but Chloe Grace Moretz does not Angela Bettis slightly does have more of that look to her um but anyway we'd better move on from kind of dissecting <laughs> the looks of these people because uh, that, that's an entire podcast on its own we could be here for years talking about that um so when we're talking kind of about how they both matilda and carrie do their their ultimate show of strength matilda's is practiced it's pre-planned she practiced it quite extensively and it was non-destructive you know Said, she said her message, she said it very legibly, she wrote it perfectly, and she got her point across. It was incredibly controlled. And then afterwards, you know, that obviously took a huge amount of skill. Not as spectacular and showy as Carrie's was, but it showed immense skill. I think that's kind of like, it's the difference between making an absolute immaculate wedding cake and making like 500 cupcakes. Because yeah. they're both different types of skill. One of them is more exclusive than the other. And the other one shows off more skill. And Carrie's show of strength. I mean she pressed it down for so long. She practiced a little bit. She practiced in a room. She lifted up her um, her bed in the book anyway. And she broke a mirror here and there. But she kind of left it on its own. And then when she did eventually release it through the traumatic event, having the blood dropped on her and humiliated again in front of the hundreds of people that were at the prom, um, she snapped and the whole thing was released in one massive wave. But it was all very careless. Like, the whole setting the prom on fire, none of it really came across as deliberate as such. I, I know in the Brian De Palma thing, they tried to make it look like it was deliberate, with the fire hose unfurling and everything, but I think it was just kind of, you know when a child is having a tantrum and they just kind of flail their arms around and hit Yeah, whatever is there is getting hit. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. yeah. So whenever you're angry, every stick you can find is a stick to beat someone with. So that whole thing, completely accidental. She set the prom on fire, but she was going to do something like that some way. If she'd picked up like a nearby body of water and drowned the prom instead, would have been largely the same effect. Um, but it's all, it was all quite careless. And of course then, because she let out this immense amount of power, when she goes home into her fugue state, she's still giving off the masses of energy, but she's no target. And then when her mom attacks her, she's still got some power, but it's still coming off of her in lots and lots of ways. So she can't control it. And that's why she doesn't just bring the house down on 
her mom, she ends up bringing it down on herself as well. And she probably didn't intend to do that. It's just that she couldn't control it. No, not at all. And I find it, you know, interesting. There's only about two instances where Carrie means on purpose to do people harm. And mm. that is when Miss um, Collins, who, who, you know, in her mind, betrayed her. She's like, well, you're going to die. Like, it's just immediate for her. Like, mm. she's so upset with her that she looks right at her and kills her. And then when she is walking back home, uh, Chris and her boyfriend are in the car, and she flips the car and then makes it explode. Mm. Like, that's the only two things I can really think of where she outright meant to do people harm. I don't even think I should say because in the book, she definitely means to do her mother harm. Yeah. Um, in the movie, I don't know so much about her meaning to do her mother harm. I think it was more of, I want my mother to stop. Oh like, yeah. My mother just stabbed me. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I guess her brain was like, well, here's how we're going to make it stop. Um, and she, I don't think she meant to kill her mother. Uh, but it happened, and I think the house coming down is just kind of a explanation of her grief for causing so much pain, because Carrie never wanted to hurt anybody. She just wanted people to leave her alone. So, yeah, I mean, I get that. Whereas Matilda, funny enough, is fighting for other people. Yeah. Herself, of course, but her main goal is to make sure that other people are okay, whereas Carrie is just trying to live. And, you know, I mean, Matilda's got a one heck of a support system with her friends, whereas Carrie's floating in an open ocean. Mm. I can't blame her for being genuinely upset by, I don't know, five gallons of pig blood falling on her head in the middle of a setup prom. Yeah. I would probably set the place on fire, too. I can't blame her. Absolutely. And you know what's really sad is I feel like when the house came down on her in the end, she didn't have the power to stop it because all of her power had already been used up. She just didn't have the strength anymore to stop it from falling on her and falling on her mother. Um, I, I think it's, it's just she was incredibly weakened by that and she might have survived it if she'd had the kind of control over that that Matilda would have had at that age. Oh, 100%. I, I don't doubt that at all. I also find that Matilda, get this, Matilda only builds things. Mm. And Car Carrie only destroys things. I don't think Carrie knows how to build things. She knows it's really, really interesting. The the polarization. Uh, Carrie builds things with her hands. She makes beautiful things. She writes beautiful poems. She makes dresses. She like loves woodcrafts. And then you've got you know her telekinesis. She can only destroy things with it. Blowing up light bulbs, lighting stuff on fire, you know, stopping her mom's heart. Like, she can only destroy things. Whereas Matilda, on the other hand, is very, I don't want to say dry. I don't know a right no, I need a thesaurus. No, I need a dry, thesaurus. dry is absolutely right. Like, Matilda, I always think, um, is a lovely word that I like to use is plummy. You know, yeah. it's all jolly hockey sticks kind of thing, you know, stiff upper lip and all of that, is that, yeah, she is very dry. She's very matter-of-fact about what she's going to do, how she's going to do it, and what the end result is going to be. And that's because she's incredibly controlled. She's in full possession of her gift. She just needed to kind of weight train it a little bit so that she was up to the task. And then when she did it, it was all, Grant, okay, my life is good now. Everybody's life is good now. Absolute result kind of way. Right. Yeah, Matilda's story just continues to go up while Carrie's story just continues to go down. Mm. Like, 
things get progressively worse in Carrie, while things get progressively more awesome in Matilda. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it, it makes sense. Like I said, Carrie destroys things, Matilda builds things, and it, it goes along with their stories really well. I like it. But are they related? Yeah, I was just about to bring that up, actually, because we're getting very close to the end, Mark, and I need to join these two threads together. So, um, Matilda was published in 1988, Carrie was published in 1974, and I think the film came out in 1976? Correct. Correct, okay, yeah. Um, Now, obviously, the film version of Matilda is very different from the book version of Matilda, but I think what's going on here is... um, We have one common link between the two of them and it's Carrie's father. So what we have here is a genetic link between these women because in the sequel to Carrie, which I don't know if you're counting this at all, but I am because uh, it it at least had that one tie, is that Ralph White had a child with one woman and then he had a child with another woman. And these women, I would say, like there's a certain type of man who knows how to target very specific types of women in order to get what he wants. And sometimes the thing that he wants is he wants to have several children, but not actually want to kind of stick around to raise them. So if you can imagine, um, you know, in 1960, um, 1960-whatever, when Carrie was conceived, Ralph found Margaret, convinced her very quickly to marry him because, I mean, he could probably talk a very big game about, you know, believing in God the way she did, believing in that very Mm -hmm. particular subsection of Christianity that she was also interested in. But at the same time, Margaret also said he used to go out and get drunk and then I wouldn't see him for days on end. And then when he came back, we'd sit together and pray and we tried not to live in sin, but then we just had to sin. Um, So... What I might also tie this back then to is um, something that I don't have, I've only kind of seen in passing, but um, the Quiverful movement. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. that's a can of worms. It, it is, but we are not going to open the can of worms. We are going to, <laughs> we are going to slightly edge the lid off, look inside at the worms, and then we're going to close the lid again and put it away and never speak of it again. No, what I think is, instead of going about the usual way of doing things with the quiverful thing, is that Ralph White went around, not just his country, but possibly other countries, finding and targeting women that he could have children with. And specifically, they had to be female children, because it's only through the female children that this genetic link is passed on. It was, it was mentioned in the book that Margaret's mother apparently had the same gift, Mm-hmm. You know, and that she was a carrier. So I think the thing with genetic, uh, a genetic link is you want two people with the same gene to procreate in order to pass the gene on very strongly to the child of that next generation. So there was one part of the link was already there in Margaret, but it was recessive. And then mm-hmm. Ralph targeted her, got her pregnant, fecked off. And then went to find somebody else to tar- uh, to target. So it's probably not just Carrie and then Rachel from the sequel that are his two biological children. He probably has an absolute wealth of children out there that he's trying to further his seed and further this gift because he can't he can't do anything with the gift himself because he's he's a man. He's not he's only a carrier. He's not a a user of of uh, the gene. He has to pass it on to other people 
to further whatever this plan he has. Maybe his plan is just to further this one genetic link that he has. But I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can imagine that a man from America would make his way temporarily to England to knock up somebody. And I would say he's probably not Matilda's father. Um, but that being said, I mean, I wouldn't put it past Matilda's mother to be having some extracurricular fun on the side when her husband's at work. Um, but that he might be genetically linked to that family through somebody else that he got pregnant. And then Matilda is the second generation of that. So it's entirely possible that they're blood related through some super spreader of this particular gene. All you really need, all you really need is one man who knows how to talk a big game to certain types of very vulnerable women. And then you have got a genetic link all over the world. Okay, so hear me out. I got I got one step further. I'm okay. actually just thinking about this. Okay, so Matilda's father is a used car salesman. Yeah. An extremely good one, too. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, like, he can trick anybody into thinking whatever he wants them to think. What if he is Carrie's father? They did talk about them being a little bit older mm. when they had Matilda. Yeah. Um, and Ralph White, like went and left because, you know, Carrie's mom was insane. Um, yeah, hop, skip, jump over the pond. Yeah. Settle down. Change your name. Well, put on an accent. Yeah, it put put on an accent and you get together with this woman who is by and large an alcoholic and a gambling addict um, who just needs money. Perfect mm. target. Um, you have a son and you're like, dang it. And then... You have a daughter, and so you stay because now you're stuck. You have your son you've always wanted, but you also now have a daughter with possible powers, and you want to see where that goes. You're getting older. You don't want to move around a lot anymore, and the idea of going back to America and dealing with everybody over there, um, why Why would you want to? Absolutely. At that point. So it, it, that might be Carrie's dad. Absolutely. Easily. I mean, he's a con man already. Why wouldn't that be another con? Absolutely. And, you know, um, like I can well imagine that part of his disappointment with Matilda um, is that she shows no visible signs of being able to move things around with her brain. You know, and he would have been looking out for the early signs Um, because it's kind of evident, like at the very end of the Carrie book, you have a mention from some hillbilly family that uh, their young daughter is uh, moving things around in her crib. And he was probably looking out for that quite early on as well. Now, it's entirely also possible that uh, Ralph did not know that Margaret was pregnant um, when he left her because Margaret did not know she was pregnant. Margaret was under the impression that he had cancer. So, you know, lost cause. Okay, I'm out of here. And, you know, he got her pregnant and then fecked off and has no idea that Carrie actually exists. And has gone on to further his seed. But of course then, you know, at the end of Matilda, he fecks off because he's gotten in trouble with his um, his cars that he's been selling to people, the lemons. Right. So, you know, who's to say he's not going to, like, he's happy enough to offload the daughter because she's, you know, she's very smart, but she's annoying and she can't move things around with her brain. So she's a lost cause. So she just kind of, mm-hmm. he dumps her and then is possibly going to dump the wife and the son somewhere else. And continue on his uh, quiverful journey to add more arrows to his quiver. 
in whatever way he can. Yeah, he had no problem giving up Matilda. He didn't really care. No, he didn't. I I don't know. I honestly think I, I think he knew possibly knew about Carrie, but because she wasn't showing a whole bunch of signs except for one like massive event early on, he's kind of like, was that her? Was it not her? I don't know. And he seems like a super irritating, impatient guy, mm. um, as a lot of them are. And it was like, screw it, I'm done, and and left because why would you want to stay with Margaret? And if your whole point is to try to have as many daughters as possible, you're not going to stay with a woman who whole whose whole life goal is to not have children in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I could well see him fecking off and trying to make a new life for himself somewhere else. He had things quite cushy for a while in England, but, yeah, I mean, next step, maybe Guatemala, sire a couple of X-Men. <laughs> and Panama, maybe, come back over to North America, hang out. Yeah, exactly. But, like, you, you can, because the way that their powers manifest are so similar, I think that you could very easily draw a genetic link between the two of them. And I do think that Ralph White is probably the progenitor because we know that he has at least one bastard child. And why not more? <laughs> I love it. I mean, they could be cousins. Like, now I'm just rolling this all around in my little brain. I'm like, cousins? Sisters. Half-sisters. What are they? <laughs> <laughs> you could probably... You ruined my week. <laughs> no, you could probably draw up an entire family tree for absolutely every fictional character that has ever shown even an inkling of psychic powers and then just drag them back to ralph white he's the super spreader oh my god he oh, oh god that that you you're ruining me you're <laughs> ruining me i mean i already think i dissociate and think insane thoughts on a normal basis now you've just like put fuel on the fire i'm just gonna be sitting at work tomorrow going but what if what if American Horror Story and Ralph White? <laughs> like, I'm just like, what about all the witches? What if they don't? What if they aren't actually witches? Yeah, what if I, I, daughters of Ralph White. We just didn't know. And do you know? Do you know the worst thing is? This is not the strangest theory that I have ever had on this podcast. This is quite tame you. by my standards. I, I believe you. Okay, well, I guess we'd better stop now before you just, you know, melt away into a little puddle of, but what if? Um, So anyway, this has been episode one of series two of Crackpot Theories. I'm really glad that you could join us for this episode. And thank you very much, Billy, for joining in on this episode. You're an absolute pleasure to have here. Um, This has been Crackpot Theories. I have been Sinead. The truth is out there and it's extremely stranger than you ever thought possible. Goodbye.